welcome to our podcast. We are the Kinotomic, a movie podcast that bridges the cinema nostalgia of the golden age of Hollywood with the explosive modernity of contemporary cinema. I am your host, Danny, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Nick. Hello. The premise of our show is very simple. For each week, we have carefully picked two films which we think have things in common. We shall then discuss them to find what their common traits are. One is my suggestion based on my particular area of expertise, Golden Age of Hollywood, and the other is chosen by my co-host, which is from their specialty. So that'd be anything from 1970s New Hollywood through to the current blockbuster age that we're living in. The only rule is both picks of the week have to be first time viewing for the other person. So today's theme is... It's showtime, folks! Directors. We're talking about show business. Yeah, favorite directors, kind of, kind of our our favorite picks. There's no business like show business. There's no business like show business. There's no business I know. So yeah, that's kind of where we are today, <laughs> aren't it? Yeah. So we're kicking off with a 1973 film called Day for Night. Um, original title La Nuit Américaine. Uh, I'll give a quick synopsis and then I'll ask Nick what he thinks of it. A committed film director struggles to complete his movie while coping with a myriad of crises, personal and professional, among the cast and crew. It's directed by one of my favorite French directors, François Truffaut. Um, we'll, I think we'll get to talk about his career a bit later on, but first, Nick, what did you think of the film? So, I mean, my takeaway from this is, is what kind of idiot wants to work in the film industry? Certainly, this idiot pointing at myself, um, and yeah, no, this this kind of this film. So it's like a it's a series of vignettes, like over the course of making a film called um, the English title is Meet Pamela. I'm not even going to attempt pronouncing any French today because I'm just going to end up butchering it, and I'll get evil looks from Danny. Um, I yeah, so no, I I thoroughly enjoyed seeing this whole. This cast and crew end up falling in love, falling out of love, creating life, and then, <laughs> you know, kind of just seeing life happen. You know, at the end, the you know, someone someone dies, and it it yeah no I I did I really kind of enjoy I really enjoyed this film a lot. Um, it was very funny. Um, it wasn't trying to say anything <laughs> critical or smart about the film industry or movie making in general, which I think is the film's strength. Um, and it, it just came across as though uh, Truffaut just wants to show how the process is and, and how easy and how hard it can be. Um, you know, whether it is dealing with an older actress that can't remember her lines due to her drinking, or there's a girl <laughs> who just so happens to be pregnant and is going to show in six weeks when she comes back for filming, or there's a cat that can't act and um i i, I really i really really want to get a cat now <laughs> um that, yeah an acting cat or not an acting cat just a cat a tap dancing just, cat maybe a tap, tap dancing cat a cat yeah um yeah no uh so like onto the characters i suppose like 
Um, Alfonso, um, I'm gonna attempt the name of the actor, Alfonso, uh, Jean-Pierre Luo, is that right? Luo? It's Alphonse, um, Alphonse, played by Jean-Pierre Leo. 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 Um, he, <laughs> he reminded me of Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> Like he's just quite a spitting image. <laughs> don't just don't go there. He's a spitting image of Timothy Chalamet. Um, just kind of like his stature and his hair and his kind of like he's, his face. He's not. I don't know. He just reminded me anyway. The, anyway, uh, Alfonso, like his whole thing, like you know, it's an immaturity to him. It's quite funny. You know, he's just this spoiled child. Um, and I understand perfectly why uh, Lillian, um, played by an actress who is actually credited as Danny. Which made me laugh. Um, I can understand why Lillian left him. For... It wasn't me. It wasn't you. <laughs> you weren't in a 1973 Truffaut film. Um, I can understand why she left him for the much more masculine and straightforward British stuntman. Um, Julie, uh, played by Jacqueline Bisset. Um, she, yeah, she, her whole, she's like the the big star, as it were, like almost like. Um, Julia Roberts in, in Notting Hill you know one that's like really big and like she's there for the production and has this star status that's really powerful and I felt her story to be really quite interesting the fact that she's she's found someone you know she's found love um, at her lowest point and then you know is trying to bounce back from that and you know kind of fucks up along the way and, and during the film production and stuff um I I thought it was really, really amusing that everyone in the movie business is kind of sleeping with each other. Um, the girl, um, she has blonde hair. I think her name is Joelle. Um, the assistant to to Farrar, played by Truffaut. Like, there's a scene where um her car is broken down and the prop man comes along and drives along on the road. Yeah. <laughs> and um, she says her sweatshirt's dirty and they go down to the river to like wash, you know, get all the oil off. And then she takes her top off and he says like some, you know, something like, oh, did you want to get busy or something? Just joking about it. And she's just like, she calls him out on it. And the, <laughs> like, like, he, he, he's like, she's like totally fine with, with having sex with him next to the river. And like, he can't really believe his luck. Like his whole expression is like, wait, what? <laughs> like, um, you know, it's totally priceless. I, I think those And she's two, like, yeah. Yeah, she's, she's like, like yeah, yeah, we only have 45 minutes. Yeah. Um, I think, I Hurry think, up. I do think her and him were perhaps my two favourite characters. Um, with her, it was the fact that she she seemed to be the only one really taking charge of any kind of situation. I had a control of what she was doing. Everyone else kind of just seemed to be reacting to things. Um, whereas she kind of seemed to be the only one in control. And with him, I mean, it seemed as though he was a man that was just trying so hard to get it right um with anything and you know he was yeah. responsible for the cat he was outshone by a cat that can't act and then obviously joe eel is the one that steps in with a cat that can act um that's a you know a word <laughs> that i didn't think to be saying um so yeah like yeah, I, find I, me a cat who can act yeah i did i did like this there's a really really good line um that is like i dump a guy for a film but never a film for a guy which i thought was quite funny um yeah no i it was really good i really really enjoyed it um i kind of have a question about Truffaut and the french new wave and stuff like 
I feel like I'm gonna I'm gonna undo all the good work and all the credit I have as being like a student of cinema by saying all this, but I have literally next to no interest in the French New Wave in general. Like whenever it came up in class when I was at college or uni, I was just kind of just did the bare minimum and, and just I just got really sick of seeing Breathless all the time and being told it's a masterpiece and being told like it, it does all these amazing things and I was just just bored and, and kind of not fussed and then I saw um Cleo from five to seven um by Agnes Varda and then Le Jeté by Chris Marker and I'm thinking why why aren't you talking about these two films because they're so much freaking better than Breathless um and I think that everyone's just kind of but I'd end up thinking that everyone's just backed the wrong horse by saying Breathless is amazing um the 400 blows is very very good I'm not gonna diss the 400 blows because I think if I do that I will get murdered um by somebody uh <laughs> I th well, so the question is like I get I kind of get the feeling that like Godard was like the daring one the one that tried to you know Alphaville I've seen which is a very very weird film and then I think Varda is I kind of see her as more like the talented one the more that tries to do like new things but like a bit more conventional if that makes any sense and I think I marker I, I I think it's like the more political one does that make so does that make Truffaut the popular one as it were like we might just being a bit too kind of glib and kind of simplifying it a little bit but it's is like Truffaut like the you know the the more popular one out of the lot definitely the more main mainstream one yeah mainstream yeah maybe that's the word I was looking for um okay um i think to answer that question i will have to take a second and then because i i think i have a whole answer prepared because i kind of expected you to, to to talk to ask me about that i think you're right in always comparing it because that's kind of how that's kind of how they are known, how they started and what they're always associated with, the French New Wave, even though they sort of continued to make films beyond the French New Wave, because the French New Wave didn't really last for more than two or three years. Um, so, yeah, I think, yeah, François Truffaut, I think he's, he's, other than the French New Wave, which I'll get it into in a minute, uh, he's famous for interviews with, Hitchcock, which you probably heard of, um, they were made into a book, and in 2015, director Kent Jones made a documentary about these interviews. He spoke with many film directors like um, Martin Scorsese, David Fincher, Wes Anderson, Paul Schrader, Peter Bogdanovich, and they all kind of admitted that the this book of these interviews was kind of like their bible and um they found a lot of inspiration from it and they basically tried to sort of understand cinema and and the medium from the from these interviews and i think they were they were made in late 60s early 70s um so like you said for us film students he, the the french new wave and uh politique des auteurs like the, the auteur theory has kind of been hammered in our skull from an early age to the point where some of us grew to hate it not me 
I I'm kind of biased because when I when I first started studying film, it, it was the first one of the first things that I started studying, and because I had so much like eagerness to learn, uh, I would I would devour anything that I found about it. So and for me, it was love at first sight. Ever since I saw Les Misstrons, which is Truffaut's first short film, his first credit as a director, I just felt there was something special about his vision. Just like I felt with Ingmar Bergman and Wild Strawberries, which I think these two were the first films they were shown to us in film school. Um, so I think for me, I think it was it was Truffaut who's like the 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 preferred one. They always compare Truffaut with with art, and I'll get to why in a minute. Um, it was Truffaut's manifesto, uh, a certain tendency um, in the French cinema published in 1954 in Cahiers du Cinéma, the, the famous, now famous um, film magazine. That kind of set the wheels in motion when, when it came to heralding La, um, French New Wave, La Nouvelle Vague. Uh, I'm, I'm, I've got an English translation of this manifesto, which is quite lengthy, um, in which he denounces the traditional French cinema, especially screenwriters uh, Jean Orange, Pierre Bost, uh, director, Claude Otanlara, he pulls no punches. He, um, yeah, he's very, very brutal to these guys, <laughs> and you kind of see why, because he kind of dissects the film, the films, and he's like, "Well, I don't like this. I don't like that. This is shit. This is shit." Um, so yeah, I'll share the link of of that uh, manifesto in the show notes. He was um, a protege of André Bazin, who uh, I think might have co-funded co-founded the um Cahiers du Cinéma and he actually saved him from jail um so yeah Truffaut's first feature is dedicated to Bazin um and it if anyone like the first feature is the Le Quatre Cent Coupe the 400 Blows um if anyone is ever interested in what that film means to me. I wrote an article in the in the Artifice about it, and I will share it. Um, whoever wants to read it, I also found this quite interesting excerpt from a 2019 article celebrating 60 year anniversary of uh, the 400 Blows. Uh, I will not quote the whole article because it's quite long, but I found uh, I think this um, paragraph is quite important. The night. Bazin died was the first night of the shooting of French of François Truffaut's first feature Les Quatre Cent Coups. Truffaut rushed from the set to be with his adoptive father, the man who had led him out of truancy and saved him from military prison, the man who had encouraged him in his writing even when he was critical of it. Um, so yeah, there was this a special relationship between Bazin and Truffaut and I think without Bazin we would not have had Truffaut or maybe even Godard. Um, like in uh, 400 Blows? Yeah I mean I I, um, I am very familiar with Andre Bazin. Um, part of my degree was doing a lot of work on um, like film criticism and obviously Andre Bazin did a, you know, did a lot of that um cinema rediscovered the film festival that's in uh, bristol held every year except for this year um, actually no i think it's actually october i think it's due they're redoing it for october from what i hear i know um but uh, cinema rediscovered when i volunteered their 
uh, not last year, the year before, was themed around Andre Bazan. And we all had t-shirts saying cinema rediscovered on the front and then on the back was a Bazan quote about cinema. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, I'm very, very familiar with, with Bazan. Um, I think his work is is just seminal for film criticism. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, like in uh, 400 Blows, um, Kufour had stolen a typewriter and I think he was, he had deserted from military as well, which it was why Bazan sort of took him in under his wing. Um, so Kufour stole a typewriter like um, uh, Antoine Douanel in uh, 400 Blows in a bid to finance his Cine Club and later on when he finally became part of um, the Cahiers de Cinema team I think there was a singing club called Hitchcock Hoxians or something like that so yeah it's pretty fair to say that his obsession with, with cinema is perhaps equaled only by that of Godard and together with Godard, they're, they're like the Beatles versus the Rolling Stones of, of the French New Wave. So they both they had in, this insatiable passion for cinema and they both started in Cahiers de Cinema, um, but they were from very different backgrounds. Truffaut was very working class and I think, yeah, he, he came from a broken home. Um, he, he didn't really know his father because his mum had him out of wedlock. A bit like uh, Douanel, so it, there's a lot of uh, similarities in there. And Godard, on the other hand, he was very, very upper class, very upper middle class. Um, and he was trying to escape that. So they kind of, they were both rebels, but in very different ways. Um, I think that may me, be why, I, I think, just, sorry, I was going to say, I think that may be why I don't, I've seen Godard's films and I just don't like them. <laughs> like, whereas with Truffaut's stuff, like, I've seen, when I've seen a Truffaut, like, I do like his, how you like his work. There's a different approach to cinema that kind of comes through. And now that you've said that there's the working class background with Truffaut and yet the upper class background with Godard, like, I can kind of, I can definitely see that. Um, yeah. And yeah, that, yeah, it kind of makes me feel a little bit better by, you know, not liking Godard very much. Um, um, yeah, I kind of see where you're coming from. Um, yeah, to me, Truffaut feels a bit like the more energetic, maybe even nervous to have that, you know, vision expressed. Um, definitely the more romantic of the two, um, the more passionate. Not to say that Godard wasn't passionate, I think Godard was and he was he was passionate but and he probably if if i'm being honest he was probably more original in his work than Truffaut he was definitely more experimental and he was kind of trying to push the envelope as much as he could sometimes verging on caricature i think um he's a great f filmmaker loves the medium uh, but i think he might have just f fallen in love with his own legend I mean, I we in in film school we didn't. I don't think we watched Breathless. I think the first film that we were shown of Godard's was uh, Banda Par. Oh, so I hate that. I really disliked that. I was sat there watching <laughs> it, and I just I kept I just I rolled my eyes so much I could see the back of my head. I just got so fed up with it. It just came across as so pretentious. 
and then it was all about how like oh Tarantino loves this film and I'm just like yeah but Tarantino's pretentious so that kind of makes sense I I like Tarantino I'm not dismissing that I'm just saying I I just yeah no I really really disliked yeah. a band apart really disliked it I can see like all the elements of filmmaking in it that make it like I can understand why people think it's a good film I just really disliked it um yeah it's not like I think it's a terrible film I just really really didn't like it um that yeah okay. <laughs> band apart yeah um no. I I mean I enjoyed it it was quite like yeah youthful and playful and um yeah pushing the envelope and quite like but yeah I just didn't feel I didn't fall in love with it with it as much as I did with the 400 blows it just yeah blew my mind when I first saw it um but yeah so I think Godard was a bit more like l'enfant terrible of the French new wave um and he was trying to be more outrageous rather than create mainstream cinema, which I found quite funny because he tried to be mainstream and he was complaining about his films not making much money at the box office, but at the same time he would just, let's edit this movie kind of thing, uh, where it was like, yeah, I don't care what I'm going to do, let's just do something that doesn't really make sense at all. <laughs> I think I... I the last time I tried to understand Godard, maybe I maybe I don't understand him. Maybe it's just the level of genius and brilliance is just beyond my power of compre compre comprehension. Um, but I was left with a very very like bitter taste in my mouth when I saw Weekend, nineteen sixty seven, and that was just yeah. I think that was like, and we're done with Godard. <laughs> It was just a bit too much for me, and I would not recommend that film on anybody. So yeah, the difference in, in, in style professionally and personal relationship can probably fill n numerous books. Um, I found a great article which makes an attempt to cover kind of both angles, both professional and the personal, uh, by Richard Brody from The New Yorker, and I will, I will, show, I will share the um, article in the show links. Um, but I, I just wanted to sort of uh, quote one paragraph. Um, Godard and Truffaut had been close friends for a decade before they broke through. They shared sense of purpose, helped launch the new wave. Their differences came to define it. And the conflict that arose between them, a virtual war, suggests the movement's ambiguous and troubled legacy. So yeah, to answer your question, I think the legacy of of the French New Wave can be a bit like, yeah, overstated. Maybe 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 people trying to learn about film shouldn't learn it, shouldn't study it in schools. I'm I'm not saying people shouldn't learn it. I just no, I just I'm I'm saying too... it. Oh right, you're saying it. I mean, I'm I, saying I, that maybe it's maybe it maybe it's yeah overestimate maybe it's just a bit overrated maybe but as as a film historian I just think that it is it is important um, and I was quite impressed and I'm not dismissing Godard because he does he does have he his, he does make important cinema not yeah not to anyone's everyone's taste. Maybe maybe my issue is is that the first my first ever lesson on the French New Wave, the the next lesson I had after that was on Dogma ninety five, 
a film movement which is so freaking pointless um, and is so pretentious <laughs> and so up itself um, that I, I, I... Was that the one with the gangbang? That's the one with... Uh, that's Lars von Trier, uh, Thomas with Vinterberg, the Idiots. With There's the a film, people... The Idiots. Yeah, 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 I saw that. They wish they show that as, to us as well. Yeah, so in, they have all these school. they have all these rules that you're meant to follow as a as a Dogmane ninety five director and it, it just it's just so pretentious and so up itself and I think like the juxtaposition of having French New Wave one lesson and then the next lesson being that, it's just it maybe soured me because it was all like it was all positioned as though look at what these people are doing that is different to what the main, you know, what the usual is, you know, and you know they're 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 trying something different, and I don't know, like I, I still there's just there's just something about French new wave cinema I just literally have just no no interest in, and I'm not really really not interested in. Um, I mean, I really I really like Cleo from Five to Seven is one of is one of my favorite films that's in my top 20 easily um and i was really really happy to have seen that on the big screen a couple of years ago um and like yeah 400 blows i really 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 like i really like this day day for night i just the goddard goddard stuff i just really disliked the breathless it was just i don't know there's just something about french new wave have you I seen think... pierre Fou? what's the english title I don't think it's been translated. It's like Pierrot, the mad guy, or something. No, I haven't. I think that one's quite good. I mean, they're all good. I but I think that one's probably my favorite. It's it's quite yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm going off on a tangent. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. But yeah, I I mean, we could talk about the French New Wave and and its pros and cons, but I. I quite like some of their stuff and I think there's a lot of other directors who probably deserve perhaps as much credit as both Francois Truffaut and, and Godard. Um, you've got Claude Chabrol, um, Eric Romer, uh, Jacques Rivette. Um, yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's it's, for me, it's important to understand the relationship between Truffaut and Godard to understand their own work because I think it it they influenced one another in in more ways than one and and probably more ways than they care to admit um, because they started off together so I think all their vision the vision for cinema and what they wanted to express was maybe perhaps trying to impress one another w with their work and that's the only way they could do it. Um, I think this film, uh, Day for Night, is quite important in their relationship become, because it somehow marks the last nail in the coffin. Um, Richard Brody, which I've quote, just quoted, summarizes it much better than me, but suffice it to say that in the late 1960s, Godard was verg verging too far left, perhaps, which unnerved Truffaut, maybe. Um, they were, you know, to give you a bit of context, there was Vietnam, it was the student riots of 1968 in Paris. I think that was the beginning of the end for their friendship. Um, 
because Godab after that started making some documentaries very political um and I think you um yeah he was he was beginning to get quite political uh Godard was so and I think Truffaut was not going to go on that that tangent so he was trying to become a bit more neutral in terms of politics but that's why most of uh, Godard's films are very political from this point onwards um so yeah um with um day for night winning the best um oscar at the um the best foreign film oscar um in 1974 and then being nominated the next year for best director and best writing um godard felt betrayed and he wrote a lengthy letter to Truffaut accusing him of being a liar and a sellout and of making a dishonest film so um yeah i have quick i mean i think you kind of summarized it before about do you think this film was dishonest no i just i just think it's i just think it's like it's just it's just an it's a humorous light film on the making of filmmaking i mean in, in a few weeks yeah. in, a, in a few weeks time um we'll be talking about living living in oblivion um starring steve buscemi which is very much on the same kind of lines of this of just a guy trying to make a film and you know i that one and this well, actually that one does have something to say about independent cinema but it they kind of have the same approach of just showing it kind of and just having it be a nice thing to watch i mean like you said this film isn't trying to it's not trying to critique the film industry it's not having an over uh like a, a them struggling to get financing or the star being a bit of a bitch or anything like that it's just like it's just a, a nice series of vignettes which is what it is and yeah, yeah i don't i don't think it's saying anything critical i don't think it's saying anything dishonest it's just it's just a film and when godard when that godard quote is just like well have a sense of humor mate stop being so fucking pretentious like, he's very pretentious and quite uptight i think like and... jesus christ i mean like he would have a bloody brain aneurysm over michael bay's transformers films like i just he's still alive i think he's 90 something that's what i mean like if if he had actually sat down and watched michael bay's transformers i think we would see the the report in 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 the news the next day that he died you know like i i I, (laughs) it's that's what i mean like if he has a problem with day for night then it yeah i I, i'm sorry mate but it's (laughs) It's cinema, like it's it's escapism. Cinema is meant to yeah. be escapism. Um, but I think no, I I I think it's it it is. But I don't think that's how Godard sees it. Um, but yeah, that was kind of like the last sort of nail in the coffin for their friendship because. Um, Truffaut retorted with a much lengthier letter and it kind of spiraled out of control in terms of angry correspondence between the two and um and I think there were in, in Truffaut's letters there was a lot of things that had been sort of left unsaid for too many years that Truffaut was not happy with had not been happy with um and it just like it came out it was just waiting to blow out um 
So I know, I think the film is like a bit like Le Quatre Cinq the, the 400 Blows are quite autobiographical. I mean, I've never been on a film set before of this magnitude, but I think the delightful chaos of it felt quite re real. Um, and I think, I don't know if, it, I can't remember if it's said in the film or in an interview with with Truffaut that he wears a he wears a um a earpiece to pretend that he's deaf because people kept asking him questions yeah, and I he's trying that. to sort of zoom out. Um and I I found that quite funny. And it's true because he he gets like everyone starts to ask him questions like what kind of gun should we, should we use? What kind of uh, what kind of this? What kind of that? What car? What everything is kind of like yeah. Um and I love how they the, the 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 two male protagonists at the beginning they're being interviewed about the film and they both make the film about them. I thought that was just brilliant. I mean, like, yeah, this is this is a story about a young man who presents his um, new wife to his father. Uh, no, this is a story about um, a man whose uh, uh, daughter and uh, he who fall, falls in love with his uh, young daughter-in-law, and it's like no, <laughs> it's it's really funny. Um, but I, I kind of saw, again, it, I think it, there's a reason why um, Truffaut cast Jean-Pierre Léo in, um, in, in, in the role of Alphonse, because there's, there's, a, there's a connection between the two. And towards the end, when, when Liliane runs away with a, with a stuntman and Alphonse is like throwing his toys out of the, the pram, <laughs> um, can I have some There's... money for the whorehouse? Was quite a funny <laughs> one. <laughs> it's just the way he rolls out in his pajamas and just asks for someone to lend him some money so he can go to some prostitutes was was, was very very good. Yeah. Uh, and it's like you're a good. He tells him that like, you're a good actor. Um, the work is more important, and it kind of trans. It, 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 there's a there's some truth in that because I think that's what took forth really feels like there's nothing more important than work than making the movie all else is just background noise and that's why i think there's the script girl who says like i would i would definitely quit a guy for over a film but i could never quit a film over a guy and there's a, there's a lot of truth in that and i think one of the main um sort of accusations of that godard had was um why didn't you sh show the fact that you were um having an affair with Jacqueline Bizet on, on the set of this film, which he was. Um, but I, I don't know. I think there's, I think there's glimpses of that when he shoots her and when he, when you see her and the way he sort of, um, frames her that he was having an affair with her. And we're, we're going back to that idea of like, you know, directors and, and their muses and how it always, yeah. A theme will, uh, that, that a always theme happens. Yeah, a theme that will come up in the next film. Trust me. Oh yeah, um, but yeah, I think it, it, it's important. I think the the only sort of like thing that we can take away from this film is like cinema is more important than food and more important than sex. So yeah, it's just that. And I really loved um, the character of Severine, played by Valentina Cortese, the um, the older. A starlet who forgets her lines because she's too drunk. I just that was brilliant. Um, and I there was something about her that made me think of, of a cross between Garbo and Crawford. 
um the this she was gorgeous but there was something old about it and like the allure of, of hollywood gone by um i loved the uh bergman um references and all, all the other references i think it, i don't know if you've missed it when at the scene when um he listens to the score on the phone and he gets a package and he opens the package and there's so many books and all the books are about um hitchcock bergman roberto rossellini um Carl theodore dreyer um all these great auteurs and it's kind of like a wink and i was kind of waiting for that to happen um and in in the dream sequences that you see uh the director sleeping and you can see there's a reference to wild strawberries and we will talk about it soon <laughs> and um i just i just love jean-pierre Loa's face he's just he looks like a puppy most of the time like a lost puppy and he just nobody takes him seriously he's like yeah just go back to work everything's gonna be fine um and i love the i just i've been i've been re-watching it and i just got a, a reference that i didn't actually see before maybe i'm reading too much into it but there's a point where towards the end when um julie played by jacqueline bizet walks out of her hotel room to go into alphonse's hotel room and her door opens opens on the outside and she's the only hers is the only door on that hallway that opens on the outside and it just felt to me like it was a reference from uh of double indemnity if you remember the scene in double indemnity where you have Barbara Stanwyck hiding behind the door and he opens it from the outside, which is not like unheard of. It's no one does that. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to end up with this quote from the wife of the cinematographer. I despise this industry because <laughs> she's always there knitting and she's looking like someone wants to sleep with my husband. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's quite funny. I do not despise this industry. Uh, but yeah, I think that was kind of it for me with Truffaut. I could talk about Truffaut till, you know, the early hours, but I'm not going to. Um, any other thoughts on uh, Day for Night? No, I'm, I'm pretty much done with, with Day for Night. Um, that I liked it. I really, really did. I really enjoyed it. Um, so we move on from one film about filmmaking yeah. and showbiz to... Okay. Another film about showbiz, um, Bob Fosse's All That Jazz from 1979. Um, so I've got a bit of a synopsis. Uh, Joe Gideon is at the top of the heap, one of the most successful directors and choreographers of musical theatre, but he can feel his world slowly collapsing around him. His obsession with work has almost destroyed his personal life and his only bottles, and only bottles of pills keep him going. So, um, as Joe Gideon says in his morning routine in front of the camera, it's showtime, folks. Um, what did you think of all that jazz? Um, okay. It's a great film, no doubt about it. I like Roy Scheider. Um, I think he's always a great, great actor. I didn't really like him in this. Okay. 
Um, I just didn't feel invested in in him as a character. I it just doesn't it, he didn't come across to me. I don't know why. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I had different expectations of of the film. I didn't think he was. It, it didn't feel to me that he was a genius director that everyone was talking about. Um, I just felt like the only time where I could feel sorry for him or empathy was the scene where um, his daughter Michelle and um, his girlfriend Katie do the dance number in the house. I think that was the only time for me personally that he felt he looked more human. Um, I don't know I just at the beginning I was thinking oh there's gonna be something like the Footlight Parade or um, 42nd Street. I was I confess I was sort of expecting something like that. I um I I do think the dance number the the choreography uh they're brilliant. I I appreciate the effort put into it. I just wasn't invested enough in the question is he going to die? I just yeah. I just thought oh, the sooner he died the better. Um having said that, I mean I loved I love Angelique. There's of course there is there is a, a video on uh, Jessica Lang's career on, on Be Kind Rewind YouTube channel, which I will share in the show notes. And um, it talks a bit about this performance and it and how brilliant it is and how much this probably this performance might have just helped her from being typecast as the I don't know ditzy blonde because she was in she was in um, King Kong before this I think. Yeah, the one starring Jeff Bridges, um, yeah. Jeff Bridges. Was it Jeff Bridges? I think it was Jeff Bridges in the, in that King Kong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I just feels she feels like she could have played a quintessential Hitchcock icy blonde to perfection. And I see I mean, I love her, I think she's a goddess. I think I see the same sort of deadly beauty in, in Rosamund Pike. Um, that's, that's a good comparison. But that's yeah, a really good comparison. I um, yeah, I don't know. I just felt. I mean, I loved Terry Gilliam, and I felt at the beginning. I felt there was something Gilliam-esque about this film. The way Angelique, like the the angel of death, is sort of presenting, and the way she's sort of being shown to to the main character, and like the dream sequences and all the um, hallucinations. Um, and I, I just, I think Gilli the Gil Gilliam touch works well in a fantasy world. I I'm not sure it works in a semi biopic or. And I just, yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of wanted to focus it to focus a bit more on, on on the work and the craft. And yeah, I don't care for Joe. I really don't. I think he's an asshole. Sorry. So I just think he's fine. he's he's terrible to his to his uh, yeah to his all his exes and and his current girlfriend and um I don't know um the the scene with the comedian I thought it was kind of foreshadowing the whole film and I was yeah uh, all the five stages of of death I like, I think Katie uh, and Michelle were the two characters I liked the most. And um, yeah, Katie felt a bit 
close to home and I felt her pain in terms of like yeah falling in love with someone who is not available and who is going around sleeping with other women as if there was nothing wrong with it um it's just the whole film I don't know the obsession the genius it just feels shadowed by how horrible he is to all these women um I I did enjoy the dance numbers um the one with the foggy one in the, in the dark I had a problem with the music there. I just didn't feel it jazzy or, or sexy enough. Um, I I liked the 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 Michelle Katie number more than the sexy foggy number, and more than the ones at the end. Um, I don't know. And again, I I took an issue with the idea that he he would just pick a girl who's not talented enough, um, and choose to jeopardize his show for someone who wasn't deserving. Um, and I, I thought you can't you can't have it both ways. You can't be both a mad genius and and then compromise your work that way. And I was trying to understand the fact what I was trying to understand why I didn't feel so connected with him, because I I I, I understood that it's a great film and it's very it's brilliantly executed and the ideas are great and the music the 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 dance numbers are great. Yeah, the music was not to my liking, um, and especially because some of the most the guys couldn't really sing um i think the girl the michelle i think yeah he's i was trying to understand how he just goes on and jeopardize his career and his life and yeah he died he, it looks like he has a death wish but at the same time he doesn't want to die and i kind of understand that this torment this genius torment but i didn't get that from from from, from roy Shadow's performance he just came across to me as as just not not much better than than someone yeah like an a, a cad. It just felt like the longest suicide in history of film. And when he died, I was like, oh thank God. Sorry, I know it's one of your favorite films, and I'm waiting for you to tell me where, explain why why I didn't like it. I mean, I I can't I can't sit here and and say oh you didn't understand it because you did understand it. I I it's hard. It's one of the things you did get that it was a semi bio biopic. Um, I don't know what you knew about Bob Fosse going into the film. Like I don't know how um, much you knew. I knew that he would. I uh, I what was the I knew that, I mean, I knew his name. I knew that he was a, a, a choreographer. Yeah. Um, I knew, I, I think I heard of all that jazz. I've not, obviously I hadn't seen it before. And I, I think I saw a trailer of the Fosse Verdon. Verdon, is that how I pronounce her name? Uh, Fosse Verdon. Gwen? Yeah, Gwen Verdon. Fosse yeah. Verdon, the um, FX limited series starring uh, Sam Rockwell and Michelle Williams. Was Sam Rockwell him? Uh, yes. Because I was trying to remember who was the other, who was Fosse in this, because I knew Michelle Williams was in it, because I saw the trailer, but I couldn't remember who, who the guy was. Yeah, it was Sam uh, Rockwell. And no, no, I didn't, I didn't do any, any research on him, because I just, I knew that you were going to sort of, yeah, tell me all about it. And no, that's I. Ears. I didn't know if you had any pre-existing knowledge. That's all. So no, I um, didn't. After 
after the release of all that jazz in 1979, um, Stanley Kubrick reportedly, reportedly believed it to be the best film I think I have ever seen. Um, and it's kind of, it's not hard to kind of see why he would think that. Um, this this <laughs> film is this film is very is semi autobiographical. It's co-written by a guy called Robert Allen Arthur, who died about six months, I think, before the film premiered. Um, all that jazz takes a period in Bob Fosse's life, um, which was the heart attack he had whilst editing uh, Lenny, which starred uh, which stood, starred uh, Dustin Hoffman. Um, and whilst he was producing the 1975 production of Chicago, um, and it shows it shows for the audience like a man who kind of ends up wanting to be to be forgiven for his misdeeds, um, but before being given a chance of living again, he is you know taken away by the angel of death. You know he's, he's he flirts with Angelique through the film, and this is Fosse's own mediation on him. So the stand-up, the film, the stand-up is um, starring Cliff Gorman in in all that jazz. Is the version of Lenny, so it's meant to be Lenny. He was editing that film, okay. and then the production of NYLA, the musical production, is the stand-in for Chicago. Um, he actually okay. did have a heart attack. He before uh, Lenny came out um, in nineteen seventy-three. Uh, he won and still remains to be the only man to win an Emmy, a Tony, and an Oscar all in the same year. Um, he wow. beat he beat Francis Ford Coppola for Best Director for Cabaret at the 1973 Oscars. Um, and Coppola, I think... oh yeah, I I think I knew he directed Cabaret somewhere yeah. in the back of my mind. Yeah. Um, and then um, he ended up just burning out. He on sex you name it sex drugs alcohol work exhaustion um and he ended up sign he ended up going into a mental institution for about a week um and then signing himself out of the mental institution because he wanted to go back to work um despite the fact the doctors were like you need to take a year off he then went back to work about three four months later um shot lenny in miami with dustin hoffman and in uh, new york as well and then Gwen Verdon finally got the rights to Chicago um, that they had been wanting for, for many, many years. And Fosse agreed to do uh, Chicago with Gwen Verdon whilst he was editing uh, Lenny. And then he had his heart attack, his first of two heart attacks he had, the second of which killed him. Um, so what you see in the film is very very accurate to Fosse's real actual life um in preparation for this i rewatched um that limited series uh, Fosse Verdon uh, starring Rockwell and Michelle Williams as Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon respectively and i also did uh, quite a bit of biographical reading uh, mainly Sam Wasson's book uh, Fosse which is what the basis of the tv series was um and it this film does it it the film does a very very good job in reflecting what Fosse's life was actually like obviously like you know it's dramatized a little bit um but when you look at the Fosse Verdon TV series which is 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 you know quite accurate to what his actual life was like you know it that TV series goes into a lot deeper detail into terms of the relationship of between Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon but all that jazz kind of 
hints all these things and but does does a very very good job of of indicating what happened basically um i'm trying to I'm, i don't know if i'm rounding or not but the fossey verdon tv series um like i said it, it showcases fossey and gwen verdon um because it was originally it was just going to be a tv series on bob fossey but then the more and the more they went into it um they realized that gwen verdon was perhaps as important as bob fossey and her career um and it goes into a lot of detail in terms of their relationship as husband and wife as choreographers as collaborators and as and as friends um like i said all that jazz does a very very good job at hinting at his relationships with his daughter his wife and his girlfriend but the tv series um i think arguably because it actually wasn't actually written by bob fossey you know kind of gives more scope and, and time to the importance of gwen Ferdin and um and reinkin uh in his career in his life in his career yeah it just felt like it was quite sexist the, the, all about jazz the movie it just felt like yeah all the women were de were there just for decoration and yeah just be in the show and be in my bed and that's it i mean that's not far from the truth um to be fair the i and <laughs> so the girl that plays katie um is the the woman that plays katie katie jagger in the film is a woman called anne reikin who was the girlfriend of bob fossey at the time of his heart attack in the 70s and you know here she is pretty much playing herself herself um <laughs> she even had an had to audition for her part so bob fossey made her audition for her part um uh, leyland palmer who plays the on-screen version of gwen verdon um is kind of there in the background and um, there is a sequence where she does a dance sequence together dance sequence by herself while she's talking to bob and then um there's an underlying thing about her playing a 24 year old which is very much yeah, I in remember line. that yeah it's very very much in line with what happened in real life with um gwen virgin wanting to play the one of the roles in chicago um and her kind of her relationship with fossey the the whole aspect with him leaving his daughter behind um uh the in the film it's it's michelle in real life it's nicole um it, it's very very accurate you know him just not it doesn't go as far to kind of of uh, basically what then happens with nicole fossey she um kind of becomes very very um what's the word dependent on drugs um and alcohol oh. and goes out and stuff quite a lot and you know it, it, it's and but no she's she's ended up okay you know she she ended up moving to vermont um and having three kids and a loving husband and all that so she ended up actually okay um but yeah no i i um this is so this is like Bob Fosse's version, I think, of a Fellini's Eight and a Half, which Fosse had says loves. Uh, he, he came out and said he loved the film. Um, I think Roy Scheider is excellent as Joe Gideon. I really do. He is the thinly veiled Bob Fosse, and having having no, you know, done a lot of reading on him, you know, I I see it. I really really see it. Um, maybe that's you know my thing. Um, you know he flirts with angelique you know played by jessica lang through the film i mean she's attracted to him and he is kind of attracted to her 
um you know his lifestyle is basically what she's after you know his ends up why he's in this situation you know the drugs the women the smoking the alcohol the work you know ends up taking everything from joe gideon you know his daughter his wife and his girlfriend and then ultimately his life um I just want to quickly touch on something that film critic uh, Matt Zoller cites as uh, Matt Zoller cites as coined as Fossey, Fossey time. So, which is how the editing kind of switches time period, or you know, kind of bleeds the narrative and kind of folds in within itself. I don't know if you noticed that in the first like six minutes, you have the opening sequence and you have him kind of talking to Angelique on the on the tightrope, and then you have the montage. Of, yeah. on broadway of them kind of create you know starting off the show and auditioning um so it's kind of he did this film video essay i'm not going to do it any justice talking about it but uh, matt zoller sites did this film video essay on the criterion channel which i linked to in the show notes along with an essay that he wrote for the new york times um and this his work is is in i think unparalleled on on the film um, the dance numbers in particular showcase exactly what was so special about Bob Fosse's choreography. Um, I don't know whether you caught the, the jerked movements, the slight hand gestures, the odd poses and the, and the hats. Um, you know, when he shows the producers the dance number for, for Take Off With Us, the style goes from kind of exactly what Bob Fosse was known for, you know, um, you know the production called Pippin, where it's like, you know, it's 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 a it's very much a musical number, and they're very very impressed by it. But they ends up taking a very very hard left into kind of a dark mediation on sexuality that just does not please the producers. They're just kind of sat there going, "What the fuck?" Um, which is yeah, I noticed that. Which is exactly what happened in real life. Um, you know that they he he wanted to Bob Fosse wanted to get away from the musical comedy and the, the, the early musical stuff that he did with in, in say like a film like Sweet Charity, which he did with Shirley MacLaine, um, and kind of go into more darker material. Um obviously he started doing that with Cabaret. Um and I kind of see it as Fosse kind of just making fun of himself. You know, he knows all too well that his interests ended up going into more the darker side of musical theatre. Um and it rubs people the wrong way. Um, you know, he, he, you know, the Gwen Verdon substitute says, "I think it's the best work you've ever done, you son of a bitch," and I, I think it kind of encapsulates kind of where Fosse was in his life. Um, so, <sighs> I'm trying to think where I am on my notes. Um, so, uh, yeah, Anne Reichen pretty much plays herself. Her and uh, Ben Vereen, who plays uh, O'Connor O'Flood, who is the performer who introduces Fosse at the final set piece. Um, they yeah. Both of them are long-time dancers and collaborators of Bob Fosse. Um, you can kind of see how their movements and performances across the stage are slightly better than everyone else's. Um, I was wondering about that. You notice at the end, like Ben Vereen, he is so much better at the performances than say Leland Palmer, you know, like um, basically because they worked with Fosse for a long time. I mean, um, 
Ben Vereen goes all the way back to Pippin from 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 the late uh, late sixties, I think it is. Um, mm. Both of them and Reinkin and Ben Vereen ended up co-creating or help co-create a Broadway show called Fosse in the year nineteen ninety nine, which kind of shows the career of the choreographer um, like throughout his years. And there's a the film there's a film version of which which is on YouTube, which you know I'll link to in the show notes if anyone wants to watch more. Um, I said I think Roy Schneider is excellent as Joe Gideon. Originally, the part was going to be played by Richard Dreyfus, um, but Fosse and Dreyfus felt he kind of wasn't right for the part, um, and this no doubt exacerbated by Ray- Richard Dreyfus's drug use at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, you you know I think I, I I've been thinking about this a lot and why 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 his performance bugged me. I I don't know. Maybe I was kind of hoping or to see more of him dancing, to see more of his energy on stage. And maybe, I mean, I love Roy Scheider. I think he's a brilliant actor, but I don't think he's a dancer. And I think that's kind of what the problem for me was. Well, I was, I was literally just going to get into that. So, like, Roy Scheider kind of came into replace, and I can't actually think of an actor who's kind of more suited to it. So, Bob Fosse wanted to be the next Fred Astaire, but he never made it as a dancer. And that was probably no doubt to his build and posture. The way his imperfections, um, you know, his the way he stands, the way he kind of walks, ended up kind of creating the choreography that he's, he's so recognisably is. So he ended up creating a different kind of dance movement purely based on his own imperfections. And I think Scheider himself, he doesn't look like a dancer, yet I think he commands the screen and, and I I honestly think he's 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 excellent in the role. Um in the T V series, Fosse Verdon, so Roy Scheider is played by Lynn Manuel Miranda, who obviously everybody knows is the guy that did uh, Hamilton. Hamilton. Um, and um so think about Lin Manuel Miranda is playing Roy Scheider, who is playing Joe Gideon, who is Bob Fosse, and it's it's quite a weird like looking into six different mirrors all at once kind of thing. Um, and I I think I honestly think that 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 Scheider does an excellent job as Bob Fosse. I don't think it's as good as a job as um, Sam Rockwell does in the TV series, but I think it's 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 really excellent. Um, unlike, so unlike the 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 film where he dies, um, Fosse lived until the, until nineteen eighty seven, and then he died of a second heart attack, um, in the arms of Gwen Verdon in the streets of Washington D.C. Um, oh. yeah, so they uh, put on a revival show of Sweet Charity, uh, which was one of their first shows they did together, and um, on their way to the opening night. Of Sweet Charity, Bob Fosse had a second heart attack and died eight minutes later, literally in the arms of Gwen Verdon, his wife, because they got married in the early 60s but never divorced. Um, so they, yeah, and they were longtime friends and collaborate. And it's just such a weird, it's kind of romantic in a weird way, but not because they're such, they were such good friends. Um, you know, in this film, Joe Goodian, you know, he has his heart attack and then he gets he has the operation, which is what happened in real life. And 
he says that something's not quite right, which is kind of what happens in real life. He, you know, he isn't happy with his, um, the line in the TV series, which is taken verbatim for what Fossey said was that he didn't feel like the doctors had put it in right. Um, and mm. from, because my, my father had a, my dad had a triple heart bypass. Um, and he kind of said the same thing as well. So, um, but then obviously Joe Gideon finds himself dying in the hospital and he, well, Fossey pretty much just gets to choreograph the way he wants, way he goes out. He gets to basically film his death pretty much. Yeah. Um, to him saying goodbye to those that he loves and, and the, you know, the audience contains, you know, everybody that's kind of in his life at that point, you know, how you have the, the rival played by, um, uh, John Lithgow. John Lithgow. Um, which he was excellent. I, his little role, he, he was great, especially with the girl asking for his I like autograph. That, I like that thing where, yeah, I like that thing with the autograph. It's like, yeah, you're my second favourite uh, after Joe Gideon. And she's like, yeah, okay. I'm sorry <laughs> about your play, um, your show flopping. Like, yeah, keep talking. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you got the, you had, I don't know if you recognise the doctors were there and... and um you know the the prostitutes from earlier on you know because uh, yeah I, I think i don't know i just i think that was a bit a bit too much for me a bit too much sleaze and i think i i i think maybe i should watch it again but i just i didn't like the character i didn't like and i maybe i'm taking issue with roy Sharder's performance but i just i think yeah i think the character was too unlikable well, it, it's so, it's, it's, I mean, I, I it's, it, I get where you're coming from. I really do, because I don't think Fossey is a likable person, as in, why should we take sympathy on a person who very much almost deserves what kind of come, gets coming to him, you know, like, you know, what are you going to get if you just drink your way through life or, and have drugs yeah. and abuse, you know, just misuse your women in your life and, and not give a shit you're gonna get punished and you should get punished for it and i think that's exactly what he's saying because i think that's kind of where bob fossey was in his life in the early 80s is he, he was at that point um of his life where he had looked back and thought i actually have fucked up um yeah and that whole thing with his mum him and being okay with him tap dancing in burlesque houses like that's all true um you know, at a very young age, he was he was tap dancing. The story is that he lost his virginity to two forty-year-old uh, strippers at the age of thirteen um, in the green room Ooh. of of the burlesque house. Um, and there's a line in the TV series where it's like, "What are you going to expect?" You know, it having that as your first sexual experience, it's going to leave you confused, and yeah. craving lust and hating yourself all at the same time. And it kind of the film kind of posits that as his early life then exacerbates in his later life and it, it kind of puts a through line through it the film doesn't do that of a job it doesn't do that good of a job of showing that but it, it does have the sequence where it shows him being you know like yeah what's the word stroked over by by the strippers and then you know he, he has an accident in his trousers <laughs> and everyone's <laughs> laughing and um, as very very close to to the humiliation that i suppose he was feeling and and you know it's kind of him coming to terms with that and i think 
I the, that 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 final scene, the the final bye bye my bye bye life, um, with Ben Vereen and Roy Scheider, is is one of my favorite scenes. I could I watch it on the bus on the way home from work, like university some days because I need something to fill ten minutes of my life, and I just sit there and I just I just take it in and I end up analyzing it and I end up finding new bits of it that I like and I love and. And the bit that always gets me is when he he hugs his daughter and it comes in for the close up and it's and he goes oh I guess I won't have to lie to you anymore and you know I I the that whole performance I I just I just love it I really really do um it's one of bravado and it's one of acceptance it's one of him kind of knowing that that's it you know Joe Gideon dies oh, yeah he's, that's he's, the last stage. Yeah, it's yeah. Joe Dinian dies. You know, he he's punished by his wrongdoings, and you know, the angel of death, Angelique, is there waiting for him. Um, you know, the bag is then zipped up, and then you hear, "There's no business like show business." And like I, show business. I the this film I I do love. The first time I saw it, I was sixteen, um, in my expressive arts class at secondary school. And I didn't see it then for a good few years afterwards because when I was in the expressive arts, we had to study dance and our dance teacher made a study, Bob Fosse, which is kind of probably where this all kind of started. Um, and then, late, you know, in my early 20s, I, I remember being in a DVD shop and just seeing it there on DVD and thinking, I haven't seen that in five years. I remember loving it and then rewatching it and then thinking, oh, my God, this is just... A complete masterpiece like this is just ec this is excellent and uh, i've since become so obsessed with the film and then kind of almost become someone that wants to research more about bob fossey you know i've i've seen all of his films i'm working my way through like some of his productions on on that you can see on youtube and clips of his productions on youtube um yeah oh i I I get where you're coming from. I I really really do. Um, I really hope that you give uh, the Fosse Verdon TV series a watch. Um, it is really really good. I will good. do. Um, I will do because I'm a big big fan of 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 Sam Rockwell and uh, Michelle w Williams. I yeah. just think they're both incredible incredible actors. Yeah. No. I I honestly think you're gonna love. You're gonna come out and love that TV series um and whether you end up coming out of it and then appreciating all that jazz more i don't know um i don't know uh, have you seen have you seen cabaret a long long time ago long long time ago um i need to rewatch it Liza minnelli's performance in that is just absolutely stunning um yeah she won the oscar for it didn't she uh i think so I can't remember. I think she did, oh, and I think the, there's a video about it on YouTube. We're just going to end up pointing people to YouTube, aren't we? Uh, <laughs> accolades. So it um, so it was nominated for ten Academy Awards, winning eight, um, and holds the record for most Academy Awards won by film, which did not win the Academy Award for Best Picture. So yeah, like Bob Fosse won won the Academy Award for for Best Director, um, beating um, beating Coppola, and then he went on to he he won the Tony and he won the Emmy. So he, he's still the only director to do that in one year. 
um, which is insane when you start thinking about it. Um, all that jazz. Um, it play it played at uh, the Cannes Film Festival, um, and uh, won the Palme d'Or at Cannes in nineteen eighty. Um, it won Best Original Score for Ralph Burns. It won Best Art Direction. Was been won Best Costume Design and Best Film Editing. Rightfully so, Best Film Editing. Um, but if you know anything about your film history, nineteen seventy nine. Uh, Kramer versus Kramer swept the award season that year um, unexpectedly if people if from what people say and I I think it's kind of unfair I think I think Balfossi's direction here is better than that of Cabaret so I, I yeah um, yeah so like I said I, I'm going to link to those two things in the show notes about uh, all that jazz by uh, Matt Zoller sites um, I thoroughly recommend the Fossey Verdon TV series um and I I look forward to talking a little bit more about Paul Fossey in a few weeks' time when we talk about um, Star 80, his uh, last film, his final film, his follow-up to this. Um, cool. So, yeah. That's kind of yeah. me done on Paul I could I could, I like you, I could talk about, like you with Truffaut, and, and I could talk about Fossey for, for quite a while. Um <laughs> Yeah, I had to edit my notes quite a lot today to actually have, be able to finish on yeah. Truffaut. That's what I mean. I... I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll try to squeeze one um, in, into the podcast later on in the show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's like loads of little things that I could add in that are really quite interesting about Fossey, but I, yeah, I, I, I think we've we've kind of yeah. got to got to a nice, nice, nice point of ending now. Um, cool. So yeah. So, so what have we got on for next week? So next week we're doing a really really hard left. Um, we're going we're looking at films set in Japan. Um, so we're we're talking about uh, 2003's uh, The Last Samurai, uh, directed by Edward Zwick, starring Tom Cruise and Ken Watanabe. Uh, Ken Watanabe. Watanabe. I've completely Watanabe. butchered that. Watanabe. Um, I'm usually really good with Japanese pronunciations, but I butchered that. Um, yeah, so we talk about that, which I a film that I'd never seen, so um, shock and awe everywhere. And then uh, we'll be looking at that with uh, Akira Kurosawa's uh, Ran from 1985, um, his adaptation of uh, King Lear or his reimagining of Shakespeare's King Lear, um, which Danny has never seen. Uh, so yeah, no, that's it's yeah, it's going to be a really really that. a really really good one next week. Um, uh, talking about uh, talking about those two films. Um, before I ask Danny where should I can find her on the internet, I just want to I just want to have the chance to recommend something for for everybody. Um, so on the twentieth, on the night of the twentieth of, of of July. Um, BBC Two aired uh, a short film done by Jonathan Glazer, who we spoke about on episode, I think it's like five or six, uh, maybe a little bit later when we spoke about Birth. Um, he has directed a short film called Strasbourg 1518, uh, with the score done by Mika Leve. Um, he, so it is, it basically is 10 minutes of dancers dancing 
basically in isolation and um i thoroughly recommend watching it and then doing a bit of reading on it um Ooh. and it's like kind of it's a very much uh a reaction to the pandemic and the lockdown and i think it's one of the best works that i have seen about the lockdown thus far um and it will take some beating um so if you have 10 minutes of your time it's on bbc iplayer for those in the uk uh, for those elsewhere, I do not know. Um, give it a Google. You may be able to find... Change your VPN. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whisper it quietly, but use your VPN. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I just wanted to take the opportunity to recommend Strasbourg 1518, seen as Jonathan Glazer is a filmmaker that is unparalleled, in my, my opinion. He's one of the most interesting working filmmakers today. Um, so it's it's really interesting. It's really good to get a new thing from him. So yeah, Danny, uh, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at KinoJoan and my website is KinoJoan.co.uk And you can find me on the internet at Nick S. Chandler and my website is SuperAtomoVision.com um, I'm on Letterboxd, uh, Nick, uh, Nicholas, uh, Nicholas Stuart Chandler, so you can find me on there. And yeah, we got our podcast uh, Gmail, KinoTomic at gmail.com and our Twitter at Kinotomic. Give us a follow on there. Please rate us, review us um, on uh, iTunes because uh, that's the only place you can review. You can rate us on Spotify and iTunes. I think that's the only two that you can do that on. Um, spread the word about us. Um, we're, we're getting very, very close to hitting a, a really good milestone when it comes to downloads, um, which is really, really comforting for us to see um, that people are listening to this and I'm assuming enjoying it because there's a lot of people coming back to to us. I would assume so. Yeah, no. Um, oh, yeah. So it's a thank you for listening from me, and a thank you for listening from me. The sheriff who escorts you out of town. The opening when your heart beats like a drum.